Here we are today in our last look at the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, where Jesus is speaking to a religious crowd. He's talking to the, the religious people, uh, a nation uh, of Jews who are defined not only by their ethnicity, but by their religion. Um, they, were, uh, they were theocratic for so much of their history, and at, at the time that Jesus is talking to them, it's kind of like this strange mixture. They're under Roman oppression, and yet still their, uh, their society is, is structured around their Judaism religion. And Jesus is calling them out of that religion. Uh, he's calling them out of that system of trying to, uh, to merit or achieve or accrue enough points to be worthy before the Lord. Uh, that's where they went wrong. That's where that's where Judaism uh, took took their understanding of the law and the and, and the scriptures and went in a direction that God was not telling them to go. Uh, religion, the way we're going to use this term today, the the, the term religion is uh, any any method of behavior, or sacrament, or ritual, or ceremony, or morality that's uh, that's intended to earn blessing. Right, where you do this thing in order to be blessed. Uh, you do this thing in order to gain standing with God. And Jesus calls you to faith in him as an alternative to that. Uh, an acknowledgement that you cannot prevail on your own. You cannot uh, achieve a standing before God that, uh, that's anything other than, uh, than failure and, and unworthiness. That you have to come without self-righteousness, but you have to come with confession. You have to come in dependence, and you have to wait for the grace of God and the forgiveness of God, the mercy of God to come and cover you. So Jesus calls you to faith in, in him and specifically him. He's been calling you over and over again to brokenness and uh, confession and humility over your own shortcomings, over the fact that you are by nature a sinner. And he attacks and depletes your faith in yourself. And until that happens, you cannot come to him. Uh, you have to, you have to, as Jesus says, uh, you have to be more righteous than the Pharisees if you want to stand before the Lord. If you want to, if you want to be in, uh, in front of God and be worthy to stand in front of God, you must be perfect, like your heavenly Father is perfect. That's His point. And uh, and I think uh, whether you're a believer or not, everyone in the world would agree no one is perfect. There's no one who uh, who can uh, can conduct themselves through life without without mistake, without uh, without some kind of a uh, an error in his or her ways and his attitudes. There's always something that uh, that can and will go wrong in the way that we live. It's impossible to be perfect on our own. You cannot do it, and that's where Jesus starts us off. Right? He calls you to perfection, to which we all admit, uh, we're no one's perfect, so he can't really mean perfect. And yet he says, no, you must be perfect. You have to be found with the righteousness that is perfect, unstained by sin. And so the whole discourse by Jesus is his kingly decree to call us to repentance, to change our minds, to believe and trust in him, to come to the admission that we're not perfect and we don't meet the standard. And he changes our view on who's blessed. And he changes our view on what is sin. And he changes our view on what is righteousness. And he changes our view on what we, uh, what we do with our possessions. He changes our view on, uh, on how we see and judge other people, which then by, uh, by consequence changes our view on how you see and judge yourself. 
Everything has been said by Jesus to disarm you of your self-righteousness. To make you stop and go, wait a minute. I'm not as good as I thought I was. Or I am more sinful than I thought I was. Even in the things that I thought were neutral, I am self-inclined. And in the way that I saw and, and judged and viewed and, and, uh, and sentenced other people in my mind, it has exposed a sense of worth and superiority in me where I don't believe I'm a failure and I don't believe that, uh, that I, I uh, fall short of the glory of God, but I believe that I can adjudicate sentences and destinies and, uh, and, and worth and virtue to people in comparison to my own standing. All of that is, is stuff that Jesus has, uh, has laid out in front of us and said, like, you aren't perfect. You're supposed to be perfect, but you're not. So everyone stands before the Lord unworthy. Everyone stands before the Lord fallen. Everybody stands before the Lord condemned. And then he calls you to a choice. So what he's going to do now is he's ending his Sermon on the Mount. He's going to bring everything down to two choices of which you must pick one. Everything's going to be uh, a fork in the road, and you've got you to choose your way. He's going to give you, uh, he's gonna give you uh, cho- two, uh, two choices, uh, t- I'm sorry, two options, and he's going to do that five times. And as he does that five times, uh, each time it's, it's basically a, a restatement of the same basic idea that you either choose him or you choose something else. That's ultimately what it comes down to. So let's, uh, if you're taking notes, just uh, be ready for five movements. Uh, each of them starts with a, a choice between two things. The first one is a choice between two roads. A choice between two roads. Specifically, one that leads to destruction and one that leads to life. So let's look at uh, Matthew chapter 7, verse 13. Jesus says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Now, Jesus is giving the, the same choice that God, God has always given. It's either choose God or choose anything else. And, uh, and only God gives life. Only Jesus gives life. If you make a, a different choice, a choice that is not Jesus, then you have not chosen life. That's the broad road that leads to destruction. Uh, th- this is a, a choice between two roads. Both of them is, is guarded by a gate, and, uh, and everything from, uh, from chapter 7, 13 to the end of the chapter is going to be like this. It's going to be this fork in the road. Now, I want you to show you that God has always been framing it as a, as a choice, right? Uh, and there are some very, very uh, I guess, um, dynamic moments in the Old Testament where he makes you go choose, and he says it to his people. So let's start in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 19. Uh, he says to the people of Israel, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord, L-O-R-D, capital letters, that's, uh, loving Yahweh your God, obeying his voice and holding fast to him, for he is your life and length of days. Look at Joshua chapter 24, verse 15. And if it's evil in your eyes to serve Yahweh, choose this day 
whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve Yahweh. Now he's like, you could choose any other religion you want. You could choose these gods or those gods, but make a choice. It's either Yahweh God or it's something else. Look at 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 21. It says, And Elijah came near to all the people, and he said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If Yahweh is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. So choose. Jesus is giving the same choice he's always given. Choose to follow him, or choose to follow anything else. But he gives you the warning that that anything else is going to lead to destruction. And he gives you a a recommendation. He says, enter by the narrow gate. Right? He doesn't say choose. I don't care what you choose. He doesn't say that. He says, choose. Enter by the narrow gate. There are two gates. Choose the narrow gate. That's what he says. Now, one choice leads to life and the other leads not to death, but to destruction. There's a, an interesting word choice there, the Greek word, uh, apoleia. It's, it's, it, uh, it's appropriately translated destruction, but it's not the kind of destruction that we think of as in like the, uh, when something's destroyed, we think it, it no longer exists. That's not what he's talking about. Uh, the, the word doesn't mean end of existence. It's more like the end of value, the end of use, uh, usefulness, the end of purpose. Uh, I'll, I'll show you a, a moment where this word is used. Mark chapter 14, verse four. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that. Now, if you notice, uh, there's, it doesn't matter what, uh, right now the, the full story on that, but it's just the, the way that ointment was used, it was used, and it wasn't destroyed, but they said it was wasted. It, it, you know, it was apoleia. Why was it turned into something so useless now? It wasn't destroyed. It didn't cease to exist but it was no longer useful. It, it, it didn't have purpose or value the way, uh, in the way that they saw it, right? So here are these two roads that, that Jesus says. And one leads to life, and the other leads to not death, but a destruction. This, this sense of you've lost purpose, you've lost usefulness, you've lost value. This is not the difference between Christianity and atheism, it's, uh, it's the difference between faith in Jesus and faith in any other way. Because everybody believes something, right? Everybody believes something. You either believe in a religion or you just believe generally in morals. To ascribe to you value, worth, virtue, standing, all that kind of stuff, right? You think that person's a bad person, therefore they have low standing in my mind. We think on that moral scale so easily, Right? Or you can think because this person's not of this religion, then they are of lesser value. You know, you, we can do that. We can discriminate that way, right? But what Jesus says is everybody falls short. So it's not a decision between uh, you're standing before God. No one has standing before God. And the ones who acknowledge that are going to come with a completely different attitude. The ones who think that they have standing before God and they get high and mighty and, and get very judgy, you know, the, the reputation that churches often have, the ones that do that, they don't get it. And Jesus is warning us about that. Uh, he's warning us that this is not a, a choice between being Christian and, uh, or, or being atheist. He's saying that this is, uh, this is between faith in Jesus, a, a faith that comes with no self-righteousness, no, no self-standing, 
It's that kind of faith in Jesus, or it's faith in your own morality, your own religious activity and piousness and all that kind of stuff. Uh, Faith in Jesus is the exact opposite of religion in terms of how we're using that word today. Religion is performing sacraments, observing rituals, reciting chants, all to accrue to yourself your own blessing, or morality, which is just doing nice things and trying not to do mean things, right? And we think that if you do enough of that, as long as you're just trying to be good, then you're good. And faith in Jesus is the exact opposite of that. It's the admission that you fall short, you're helpless, you need to be rescued. No amount of good work will get you there. It's your works that got you into this mess. You're broken in spirit. You mourn over your fallenness. You hunger and thirst for real righteousness because you're not there. That's a distinction between religion versus Jesus. It's uh, you know between doing good stuff to qualify versus being saved by God's grace. Now, both roads claim to lead to salvation. Both roads claim to lead to God or to ultimate reality, to enlightenment, satisfaction, fulfillment, the kingdom, glory, blessing, heaven, whatever you want to say. Both roads claim that. But both roads don't go there. Only one does. Now, one road is self-righteousness. The other is repentance. The, uh, the road of self-righteousness is broad. That's where people say, you can do it if you just try hard enough. You can get there if you're just careful enough. You just have to be good. That road is broad, and it leads you to destruction. The narrow road is one of repentance. The narrow road is one that says, I can't get there. Someone has to do the work for me. And if someone else does the work for me, then I have nothing to boast about except to boast in the Savior, who he is, what he does. So this is a distinction uh, where our self-righteousness, in which we naturally go, is something we must repent of and go in the way of faith in Jesus, which he calls us to. It's a narrow road. It's not... It's not easy for people to understand that we are all fallen and we all need Jesus. Right? We, uh, we keep trying to think of some kind of backdoor escape hatch thing uh, that lets people to get into heaven without the gospel. We do that. We go like, what about people who never heard? Right? What, what about someone who, who was really good and very generous, discovered a cure for a disease, gave all their wealth away and stuff. What about that person? And we keep trying to find these back doors to try to give people these, these free tickets without the name Jesus on it. Because we keep thinking that people aren't that bad. Sin isn't that bad. And people are pretty good. Right? We, we say they give to the poor. They pray. And Jesus says, ah, even giving to the poor, even praying, even fasting, that doesn't make you righteous. We say, oh, but they didn't do the bad things. They didn't murder. They didn't commit adultery. And he says, it's not so much the work of your hands as it is the, the motive of the heart. That's, that's where you're judged and inspected. And that's where we fall short. And we sit there and go, God isn't that holy. He wouldn't be that firm. 
And we try to bring God down to our level. Or we try to elevate our status up to him. We think of God as unjust for sending people to hell if they don't hear the gospel because we think they deserve better. We think they could surely do something to save themselves. And it's not reasonable to need Jesus, that Jesus is the only way? The only way? There's got to be another road. We think people should be allowed to enter God's presence because of the righteousness that comes from themselves. And that's the false blessing of being puffed up in spirit. That's the lie of thinking, you know, sin is only in the actions and not in the heart. That's the hypocrisy of doing good works for self and status. That's the hypocrisy of storing the, up your treasure in this world. That's the hypocrisy of, of, of the log in your eye that makes you think you're not blind. That's the hypocrisy of the broad road that leads to destruction. That's religion. That's morality. That's human nature. Two roads. One is religion. The other is faith in Jesus. Both claim to point to heaven. Only Jesus gets you there. And you don't get there by default. You do not get there by default. By default, you're on the broad road. And it's only for those who, quote, find it. Find it. They were looking. They knew they were on the the, the wrong road. And so they looked for a different way. And they find it. He gives you a, a, a second framework to understand your two choices. And it's a, a choice between two trees. Two trees. One is a tree of false teaching. One is a tree of true teaching. This is what he says in verse 15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Now, if you notice, uh, Jesus is saying, watch out for these false prophets. Watch out for their false teaching. Right? And there's, only, there's a difference between false prophets, true prophets, between false teaching and true teaching. A false prophet is sometimes called in the New Testament a false brother, a false apostle, a false teacher, a false speaker, or a false Christ. It, you have lots of terms for it. It's anyone who falsely claims to be appointed by God or who falsely claims to speak God's words that were given to him. The problem was so bad in the Old Testament that God told Israel in Deuteronomy 13 that false prophets, if ever someone claims to be a prophet and is wrong, kill him, put him to death, capital punishment. If ever someone says, I have the gift of prophecy and is wrong, put him to death because God is never wrong. So anyone who's claiming to be a prophet of God, if they're going to say something wrong when they're saying this is a prophecy from God, put that person to death. That person is powered by Satan. He can't distinguish the word of God from the word of Satan. Here's Jesus' warning. False prophets are not well-meaning, misguided folks. He doesn't say they're they're good people. They just kind of lost their way. He doesn't say that. He says they're wolves. Wolves. They are dangerous. 
Their efforts point people away from entering the narrow gate. Their efforts keep people on the broad road. They're dangerous. No matter how sincere or pleasant their personality, their work is is to dismount the gospel, to dethrone Christ, and to deny God. Some of them know what they're doing. They know that they're deceiving others. Some of them, they don't realize it. They, They are convinced that what they're doing is right. But in either case, you come to calling them, uh, you, you, come, you come to understand that they call themselves believers and yet are predators to the flock. They call themselves part of the people of God and yet are leading people to the gates of hell. Have nothing to do with them. The Apostle John writes uh, a gracious, uh, he writes to a gracious woman in Second John 10, uh, and he says, don't even greet such people. Don't even greet them. If you're, uh, if you're pleasant to a false teacher, you're not rebuking his sin. You're not confronting his evil. You're taking care of him. You're encouraging him. You're, you're, you're sending him along his way. Second John 11 says you're participating in it even by greeting him. Make him uh, think that he has a chance to convert you. You're participating in his sin. You're, you're, in, you're uh, fostering that in him. He says don't even greet such a person. So what do you do when a false teacher comes knocking at your door? Because literally that happens today, right? That, that happens today. Uh, knock, knock. It's two guys and uh, they have bicycles if they're Mormon. They have briefcases if they're Jehovah's Witnesses. And then uh, you're getting like 31 different flavors now these days with all the different cults running around. I don't actually think this is talking about Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses. Right? Because uh, you know those guys when they knock on the door, they're from a different faith, right? They're, they're, they're black slacks and white short sleeve button ups. Give them away. Right? They, they knock on the door, you open it up, you're like, hi, I'm Elder Eli. You're like, ha I, I know what you are. So they're not, they're not wolves in sheep's clothing. They're wolves in Mormon clothing, right? They're just wolves in wolf clothing. Like, that's fine. You, you know what they are. And so it's, that's not the same thing. They have a uniform. You see them coming from a mile away on their bicycles. Right? So it, 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 it's, not, it's not like you, you can't uh, share the gospel with these guys at your door or something like that. You can't lay down the truth. It's not that. Because they're not, they're not the kind of false prophets that, uh, that Jesus is talking about or that John is talking about. They're a false religion, yes, but they're not the false prophets Jesus is talking about here. What, they're, what Jesus and, and the apostle John talk about and the passages I've been t- telling you about are people who say that they're Christian and act like they're part of the same thing as you. Right, that they believe in Jesus as Savior and all this stuff, and then are leading you away. Those are the cults that, that try to to secretly and uh, and deceptively pull you into some other movement, and then uh, and then at the end they, they they bait and switch and they and they put your faith in something other than Jesus. Right, at least the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses they're just blatant about that, and then you could be like, okay, let's talk about that. But when you talk to about these these wolves, they will not admit it. Jesus is not warning you necessarily about Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses. He's talking about something else. People uh, who look like they belong among you, your sheep, they, they look like sheep, and yet they're wolves. They seem like they're Christian. They, they come to church. They come to your church. They meet with Christians and then try to teach them something else. If you're young in your faith or untrained and don't know how to discuss doctrine with such people, close the door, right? Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, Close the door if you don't know what to, what to say. That's fine. Being rude is not a problem here. Just close the door, right? That's okay. I'm busy. You know, thank you for your time. 
please leave before I turn on my hose, whatever, right? Uh, but you, you do have to remember certain points. Uh, false prophets are expert deceivers, right? They're trained to confuse those whose knowledge of scripture is limited. That's their target. So instead of presenting you with scripture, they'll, 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 like, they'll make everything confusing. They won't take you through the text. They'll, they'll pull out all these different sentences from here and there and mash them together, but you don't know the context of any of those sentences. They won't show you how, they, uh, how this all fits together in the book of Matthew, for instance. Christians are of Christ. False prophets are of the Antichrist. They're called Antichrist in 2 John 7. Right? No matter how kind and charming they appear, you must know they are Antichrist. So if you follow Christ, and if, if he's your Lord, if he's your God, if he's your Savior, if he's your Redeemer, and then someone is Antichrist, you get to decide, well, should I, should I let him in and let's have a conversation? Or do you say, I'm, I'm just going to shut the door? We are not to give false prophets the impression that we, we see their cult as having legitimate claims, legitimate doctrine, legitimate opinions. Uh, the, the warning is to watch out for them, Matthew 7, verse 15, as we saw. Our, our charge is to avoid them, Romans sixteen seventeen. Our command is to let them be accursed, Galatians 1, 8. Uh, and uh, our instruction is don't even greet them, 2 John 10. Your best approach is what Jesus will say in Matthew fifteen fourteen, which is let them alone. They are blind guides. Leave them alone. Don't mess with them. When Christ says to watch out for them, he specifically says, Look for their fruit. Watch to see if they, uh, if they bear fruit. You'll recognize them by their fruits. What kind of fruit do they bear? Is it good fruit or is it diseased fruit? What kind of fruit do they bear? So when we talk about bearing fruit, uh, throughout the Gospels and, and the New Testament stuff, you get uh, lots of different moments where the writers will talk about bearing fruit. In Luke 3, uh, when John the Baptist is speaking, bearing fruit in keeping with repentance means giving to the needy and not taking more than you deserve. That's one of the things you can look for. You know, someone who, who cares about those in need, who cannot help, you, you know, someone who, who helps people who can't help him or her and does not take more than he or she deserves. In John 15, Jesus talks about bearing fruit and that is synonymous with keeping his commandments, obedience to God. In Galatians 5, Paul says uh, that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, Peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These are things to look for. In Colossians 1, bearing, good fruit, uh, bearing fruit in every good work means effectively carrying out your responsibilities and increasing in knowledge of God. I think you can inspect them by, uh, by the issues that Jesus has brought up here in the Sermon on the Mount. Are they poor in spirit? Do they confess the sin in their attitudes? Do they worship to honor God rather than to honor self? Do they seek first the kingdom of God rather than treasures on earth? Do they repent of self-righteousness before correcting anyone else? Those are just some of the things you can look for. I think one last fruit you can look for is their converts. See who follows them, why they follow them, what they're becoming like. You'll know them by their fruits. All this relates still to the real target that Jesus is, is picking a fight with, namely the Pharisees. Right? To the Jew, this group of 
of Pharisees, the chief priests and stuff, appeared to be religious, moral, devout, spiritual, clean, Jewish, male. All the things that lined up to say that this is what blessing looks like, right? They, they were wolves in sheep's clothing is what, what God tells them, what Jesus tells them. They looked like God's people because they were Jewish, and yet they had a completely different agenda. And they've been called over and over and over again in these chapters and in chapter 23. They're called hypocrites, actors, liars, fakers. And such men still exist today. I mean, that shouldn't be a surprise, right? We still have the same thing. The church has to deal with false prophets, cultists who prey upon new believers or even church members who try to lead people astray or lead them into, into a, like a, a worship service that, that uh, is for the, the, the religious leader, you know, elevates the standing of the, of the leader and serves the leader instead of worshiping the Lord. Watch out for them. And you, you should watch not, not fearfully, like terrified, but readily and wisely, right? You can examine such men. It'll expose who they are. Don't, don't blindly follow church leaders, but examine what kind of leaders they are. Follow only the leadership that you know leads you to Christ. A third way to frame it, a third decision between two options is a choice between two wills, two wills. Um, maybe another way to say it is a choice between saying versus doing God's will. Uh, I'll show you. Verse 21, it says, not everyone who says to me, Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now, who are these people, right? There are people saying, Lord, Lord. But then it turns out they've never known him and Jesus never knew them. Like, you know, who, who are these people? Well, first, it would include uh, those with a, a false sense of salvation. Anyone with a false sense of salvation is going to stand at Judgment Day and say, Lord, Lord, didn't I, didn't I say a prayer at a, a, a youth group retreat? Didn't I go to some big prayer meeting? I cried a lot, and I said a prayer, and I said, I believe. Right? And so they have this false sense of, uh, of salvation. You, you, you'll hear that all the time, where people think because they said that prayer, they must be saved regardless of how they live. And the hard truth is, you, if, uh, if the, a person says, I received Christ when I was 12, at some prayer meeting or at a youth retreat or some revival or something like that, uh, but my life after that was a mess, and now I want to get back to that. The, the, the hard truth is, you did not receive Christ when you were 12. You went through a phase. You know, that's where a seed fell on soil. It sprouted up and then burned up or was choked out or was stolen by birds, but it did not bear fruit. That's not salvation. Salvation is the salvation that bears fruit. You went through a phrase, a phase, Jesus is not a phase. Following Christ is a transformation. That's where if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. 2 Corinthians 5.17. It's a permanent transformation. It's not a phase. Right, it's a it's a direction, a new direction that, that that you move into, 
and it doesn't stop. It keeps going. Sure, Christians can backslide. They can fall into uh, moments where, the, uh, where they're struggling with sin and stuff, but it's not an abandonment of Jesus, right? It just means that journey is difficult. I guess for more discussion on that, you can go to uh, one of the appendix messages in our Roman series. It's called, Can a Christian Lose Salvation? Shameless plug. All right. Uh, who, who are these people that say, Lord, 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 didn't we do all this stuff in your name? Well, first it's uh, people with the false sense of salvation. Another group of people that this would apply to would be uh, people who think that, that because Jesus saves them, they can continue living in sin because, you know, hey, free ticket, forgiveness. We can do whatever we want, right? Now, theologically speaking, that is exactly true. All sin is forgiven for those who believe in Christ. All sins you've committed are committing and will commit. Right? It's all, it, it is all uh, forgiven. Now, honestly speaking, practically speaking, the one who isn't repenting of sin is not following Christ because believing in Jesus is one side of the coin. Repenting of sin is the other side of the coin, and that's the journey. Right? That's the transformation that is evidenced to take place as your faith continues. That's what growing is. That's, that's what it means. So if your life is untransformed and you're staying exactly the way that you are, or worse, declining even further into sin, uh, you're not following Christ. You're following sin. How do you know? Because that's how you're living. What you're living after is what you're following. When you follow Christ, you end up where he ends up. Holiness righteousness that's where he is you follow him that's where he takes you if you follow sin where does that take you it takes you into sin into more of itself so anyone who thinks oh yeah yeah, yeah, i'm forgiven in jesus so i could do whatever i want and i could i could pursue sin as much as i want and it's free ticket the moment that you know exactly what they're following that's why first corinthians 11 says examine yourselves before before you take communion do you repent? Do you believe? Right? Do you remember and treasure the death of Christ on the cross, on your behalf, to pay for your sin? Does that matter to you? Does that conviction transform you and renew your pursuit of holiness rather than, than uh, engender in you this, this shamelessness and this confidence in your evil? Like, oh, it's fine. Another group of people that uh, will say, Lord, Lord, you know, didn't I do all this stuff in your name and whatever? It's people who are involved in a lot of religious activity thinking that that earned them their standing in heaven, right? That's self-righteousness. That's what we've been talking about, right? It's, it's a mentality that you save yourself, that you achieve your own standing. It's still a mentality that you deserve heaven or you deserve blessing. God owes you something. Sin might be justified or explained away by saying, it's not that bad, because look how good I was over here. Yeah, I, I struggle over here, but look how good I am. Look how much I've done. Look how much I've poured into. Bottom line is, what you say is not going to prove your faith. The one who comes into the kingdom, in verse 21, is not the one who says but it's the one who does. Because many will come saying, Lord, Lord, didn't I, didn't I? And they're going to try to talk about it and stuff, but Jesus is going to look at you, your faith proven in action, the attitude of your heart and how that, that manifests itself in the way that you live, right? He's going to look for repentance and faith. 
right? He's, uh, those aren't emotions that can be hidden. Those aren't, those aren't values that can be hidden. Those aren't thoughts that can be hidden. When you repent and when you trust in him, those things become very evident and you'll know them by their fruit. If you're not living them out, you're not a believer. And Jesus turns the fakers away. Everyone says, Lord, Lord, I did all this stuff. And he turns them away. He says, I never knew you. That it, it doesn't mean that, that Jesus doesn't have knowledge. It means we didn't have a relationship. Right? He talks, he talks to those who love healings and angels and miracles and prophetic utterances, mystical experiences, ecstatic speech, speaking in tongues. You know, all that stuff where they say, didn't I do all that stuff? Didn't I go to all these crazy prayer meetings and get super crazy and, and in a trance? And I, I was laughing in the spirit. I was rolling around on the ground. I was, I was making all sorts of crazy noises and things. I was convulsing. Didn't I do all that stuff? I was saying things I didn't even understand. I was just, you know, da, 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 da. I, was, I, I couldn't even control myself. Didn't I do all that stuff? And that's what they'll put their trust in. Didn't I do all this stuff, this, this magical, mystical stuff? Didn't I do it? Instead of, didn't I trust in you and your word? Like the simple instruction to forgive my enemies. Simple instruction to, to pray for those who persecute me. The simple instruction to, uh, to rejoice when I suffer for the sake of Christ. But, but I did all this magical stuff. He talks to people who love their, their denomination, their organization, their position more than humility and confession and faith. Right, the people who say, but, oh, but don't I go to a reformed church, a Bible-preaching church? And they'll do that. And they'll think, because I went to that and I listened to all that, doesn't that count? Didn't I do, do that? Did, didn't I? And yet Jesus is looking to see whether or not you lived it. Not just heard it, but lived it. He talks to those who love theology as this academic pursuit to debate and judge others rather than to to share joy and love, right? The ones who, who know all their, their points of, of Calvinism. Or they, they know all the fancy stuff. They know the difference between infralapsarian and a superlapsarian. They know all that stuff. And they use that. They try to, they try to turn a, a conversation into that direction so that they could talk about how much they know. And they're so busy doing that that they're not calling up the person at church that they know is hurting and is in need they're not going out to those who are lonely. They're not reaching out to the newcomer. They just talk. Jesus is talking to, to those who go to church and, and, and they think that they have standing because of all the social reform, all the activism that they do to bring about justice in our society. And they belittle those who don't adopt the same kind of action. They think, you know, if, if, if you have faith in Jesus, then you're going to do this and you're going to vote this and you're going you're, you're gonna to protest over here and you're going you're gonna to sign this petition here. And they think because they do all this activism stuff. And Jesus says, it's, it's not any of that. It's, 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 not that you won't, you, it's not that you won't learn your theology and you won't, uh, you won't go to a Bible preaching church and you won't try to be an impact on your, your culture and stuff. It's not that. You see, talk to anyone who loves anything more than they love him where they want to talk about that thing more than they want to talk about him. Anyone whose faith is comprised of a love for something else. They had plenty of religion, sure, but they did not have faith in Jesus. 
the thing that gives them delight is that, that w- subject of conversation that they want to talk about rather than faith in Christ. Trusting him, his word, his work, his will. These people had involvement in all this mystical experience, religious organization, theological positions, social activism, all that stuff, and they never knew Jesus. They're going to stand before him and say, Lord, Lord. They knew about him, but they did not know him. And so he says, I don't know you. What if, what if they did, though? You know, they say, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we do all these incredible mighty deeds in your name? Didn't they? Maybe they did. Let's pretend they did. Let's pretend that they did do incredible uh, prophetic utterances or they did miraculous deeds and stuff. Let's pretend that they did, okay? Uh, If they stand before the Lord and say that, and Jesus says, okay, maybe you did all that stuff, but I don't know you. How could he say that if they did all this supernatural stuff? How did they even accomplish all this supernatural stuff? Well, they either did it by God's power or they did it by Satan's power or they're lying. Let's just discount the fact that they're lying. Maybe they, they're absolutely convinced. Didn't I do all this incredible magical stuff? Right? Uh, can unbelievers prophesy? The answer to that is yes, by Satan's power. He can inspire you to say something wrong. He's got, uh, Satan has, you know, his, he and his army of demons are everywhere. They, they know a bunch of stuff. And so they can, they can give you knowledge that you don't have. You can't, you can't predict the future with uh, pinpoint accuracy because Satan can't. Only God knows the future. God makes that very clear. But Satan's really good at, at calculating, right? He's, he's been around since, oh, always, right? All the way to, to when creation was, was being created. He was created. That's when he began. He's been around longer than you have, longer than anyone who's written your history books, longer than anyone who's written philosophy books and stuff like that. He, he knows this stuff better. So yeah, he can give you a, a quote-unquote prediction of the future, so you, you, can, you can prophesy something. You can predict something and, you know, he can inspire you to say something wrong. People can do that to you. Satan can do that to you. If, de- if, um, if demons can, can tempt and possess people, which they can, then you can be sure that demons can get you to say religious stuff and have you rolling around on the ground, make your speech ecstatic, Whatever. Deuteronomy 13 says false prophets are going to do signs and wonders, which means someone powered by Satan can do signs and wonders. Matthew 24 says the same thing. 2 Thessalonians 2 says the Antichrist himself, the man of lawlessness, will do signs and wonders, false signs and wonders. Right? Even, even magicians in Egypt imitated Moses' miracles of turning water into blood or you know, staff into snake and that kind of stuff. They, they imitated it. How? Hmm. Right? I, I don't know how to do that spell. I don't know, but they did it. So just because you see someone do something supernatural, whether true or fake, that's not how you know they're Christian. You know them by their fruit. Fourth choice that, that Jesus frames. Fourth, fourth framework of two, choice, uh, two options, one choice. He has you choose between two responses. Between hearing and doing what Jesus says between hearing and doing what Jesus says. Verse 24. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. 
And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. Right? Two people each build a house the same way, same materials. The only relevant difference is the foundation upon which they build. Now imagine two people who go to the same church, serve in the same ministry, have the same training, same opportunities, because this happens. Two people with all the same everything, and the house in this metaphor is the person's spiritual shelter, like a house is a physical shelter, right? That's what it is. Both profess Christ. Both of these people profess Christ. And uh, you know what it's worth to profess Christ? Nothing. Professing doesn't mean a thing by itself. If you simply hear it and admire it, applaud it, agree with it, respect it, but do not obey it, you choose destruction. Your opinion doesn't save you, your obedience does. Right? That's, that's the proof positive that you actually trust in Jesus instead of yourself. A reflection of your repentance from sin and trust in Christ will always result in a pattern of obedience. You can fake obedience. You can perform behavior without sincere motives. But God sees what's in secret. And he knows. If you hear the Sermon on the Mount and and promise God or yourself or your church that someday you'll change, someday, then you choose destruction. Your promise doesn't save you. His promise does, but your promise doesn't save you. The promise that Jesus gives to save those who believe in him, that's offered to those who take hold of it now. Anyone who believes now. To promise to someday choose God is to declaratively state that right now you choose something else. To put Jesus on hold is to tell the king you're not ready for his kingdom. That's what that is. Perfect obedience to what Jesus has taught in these chapters is impossible. That's something we keep hammering away. And as the gospel of Matthew continues, Jesus will more emphatically point you to faith in him. But this lesson has to come first. Right? Did you notice that Jesus didn't even mention a cross yet? Right? He didn't clearly say you have to accept him as the prophesied Messiah. He didn't, he didn't say any of that stuff yet. These tones in here are how he expects you to react to his words and his authority, purely just on the basis of who he is and what you've seen so far about him. You haven't seen him on a cross yet or anything like that. But uh, uh, th- this is just, how do you respond to Jesus? Do you trust him? Is there something special about this man? This sermon that he's giving here, though, it is complete. It is complete in finishing its one main objective, to bring you to an end to your own self-religion, your self-righteousness, your self-standing, your self-morality, your self-worth. To bring an end to your trust in your own moral fiber. To bring an end to your own standing. And to have you just say, I need help. I need someone to completely transform me. I need to be perfect. So someone with perfect righteousness needs to represent me. Before you can accept Jesus as king, you have to dethrone yourself. You have to. And so the sermon is done. And the last statement that Matthew writes for you is still a choice. And it's a choice between two authorities. 
It's the authority of Jesus or the authority of whatever authority you have been subscribing to in your life. Look at verse 28. When Jesus finished saying these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Their scribes, that was their pop culture. That was their, that was their social science. You know, their psychology, their, their sociology, their philosophy. It was their everything. That was what framed their worldview. And you either trust Jesus or you, you trust what the world is telling you by all their studies. Because we think there's so much out there that the church doesn't know. There's so much. If you just tapped into this incredible wealth of knowledge that the church doesn't know, that the Bible doesn't tell you. And we think that the answers are really out there. And yet Jesus is is standing in a, in a different corner saying, you're going to choose between scribes, the ones who wrote those textbooks, or you're going to choose him. Scribes who commentated on all these different things and gave their opinions and, and their assessments, their evaluations, and their conclusions, or you're going to tr- trust him, the author of life. We too should be astonished because the Jews were right. He's not one of the scribes of our day. He's not one of the teachers or authorities of our day. He's the king of creation. Your reaction to chapters 5 through 7 shouldn't be based on if you think he's more clever or appropriate or politically correct or moral or wise. What will matter is what mattered to the Jews. They were astonished because he sounded so right and yet the pull of the world is so strong. They were astonished because they had to choose the scribes that they grew up reading or the Jesus they are now first hearing, they had to choose. They had to decide whether they trust in the, the moral, spiritual, political opinions of their own people, or if they trusted Jesus, they had to choose. They had to, to, to figure out whose kingdom they belonged to, the fallen kingdom of religion and morality, or the divine kingdom of Jesus in repentance and faith, they had to choose. What's the difference? Religion and faith, what's the difference? You've heard it. Blessed are, are the rich, confident, healthy, wealthy, accomplished. Because we think that. And sin is performing evil actions. Because we think that. And righteousness is doing good deeds. Because we think that. And treasure is, is like a sign of success and favor. We think that. And judgment is for people that are less than you. We think that. And then there's what Jesus tells you. You've heard that it was said that all that stuff is true. But he tells you that sin is in the attitude of the heart, which can be faked. And by human effort, which will never get you there. Jesus tells you that righteousness is in the secret sincerity before God, which God sees. And he sees in ways that no one else can. Jesus tells you that treasure is not found on earth, where it can be lost or taken away, but it's in heaven as an eternal inheritance for you. Jesus tells you that judgment is only to recognize our equal unworthiness before a holy God. And to correct each other in love for him. Which kingdom do you choose? 
I want to choose Jesus, but I can't. I've tried. It's too hard. I've been struggling with the same sin for years. I want to overcome it, but I just can't. Are these thoughts not coming up in your head? And his answer to that, as he looks at you, wallowing around, looking at your righteousness and saying, I'm trying, I'm trying, and I can't, I can't, I can't. And he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. He says, you're blessed because you now know that you need him, not you. He is the only one that can save you. Victory over sin is not impossible. It's just impossible for you. But he can do it. And only he can do it. And anything else you choose cannot do it. So whichever road you take, it'll either be the one that leads to life or the one that leads to destruction. And you're going to say, it's hard though, because the whole world thinks this way. And if I go on the narrow road, if I go with true teaching, if I go with Jesus, it's going to be hard. And the whole world will disagree with me. And the whole world will violently oppose me. To which Jesus says, rejoice and be glad for great is your reward in heaven. That will last forever. And you will belong in that kingdom when you belong to that king. Because you'll look at him whom you've been trusting and you'll say, Jesus, I know you. And he'll say, I know you. Welcome to the kingdom. If you believe it, say amen. Let's pray. Father, what a choice we have. We have to choose between everything that we've been taught to understand and believe. Everything that society has put in front of us. Everything that reality looks like. Or we choose you. Our prayer, God, is that all of us will have chosen the narrow road, the one that leads to life, the one that is Jesus on the cross, paying for our, our shortcoming, paying for our fallenness, paying for our sin, and then giving to us his perfect righteousness which makes us acceptable into the kingdom of God. We boast in nothing about ourselves. We boast only in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And when we find people who do not yet know him, we don't think low of them. We remember that we were enemies with God too. And yet, he still died for us. And so in imitation of his love, we offer ourselves to extend to them the same offer. Faith in Jesus. Salvation in Him. Bless our church, Lord. 
remind us again and again and encourage us over and over that we are where we are because of you, not because of us. And every good thing we do, we do in response to you, not, not to try to get to you. You've already come down. You've already become one of us. You've already taken our place. And so we are, offer ourselves in view of your mercy. We offer ourselves as living sacrifices. And we don't want to be conformed to the pattern of this world and its broad road that leads to destruction. But we want to be transformed by the renewing of our minds by what you've said in your word so that we'll know your will and we'll walk in it. Bless this church. Be glorified in it. All this we pray for Christ's glory in his name. Amen.